0: Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB 506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. 17th of May, Tuesday. The hills are painted a dusty grey and the world is filled with the quietness of sheep, the cry of distant crows, and drip and splash of rain upon young oak leaves. The warm touch of bark beneath my hand and the shiver of a silvery mist. A perfect way to watch the slow dance of dawn. With the Earth's tilt and dance, the twilights are getting longer, stretching now well into the night. And patches of light leak across the sky, although there's no moon tonight. The elders stand like patient sentinels beside the quiet water. A faint breeze ruffles the reeds. I'm so glad you're here. This is the narrowboat Erica narrowcasting into the nighttime of a complicated world. Welcome aboard. It's been a stormy, steamy sort of week. A spell of very warm, sunny weather was broken by thunder and rainstorms. Some heavy. And I say thunderstorms, I am told we had them, but must have slept through it. There's certainly been a lot of building q nim clouds thunder clouds during the middle part of the week, however, the temperatures remain fairly high, giving the days particularly the mornings quite a steamy greenhousey type feeling and making us feel very grateful for the at times fairly gusty winds that are soft and playful. The elder is now bursting. Each year it always takes me by surprise. I have this memory of picking elderflower for winemaking in the fields behind the house on a soup-thick, sweltering July day that was thick with thunderflies. But it cannot have been. Elderflower is over long before then, And no matter how many times I try to correct that memory, I still think of elderflowers and oppressively hot and sticky late July afternoons, where every fibre of my body longs for rain to fall. This year, like last, it is perhaps a few weeks early. Keppel Martin states flowering is from June, but it is, nevertheless, a late spring, early summer flower. And there's been a sudden profusion of large ox-eye daisies, bachelor's buttons, fried egg flour, bursts of red campion's deep magenta and purpling vetcher sprinkled like botanical confetti along the towpath that are foaming white with lacy cow parsley parasols. A couple of mother mallards have been making regular visits to all the boats. The most recent hatching was last week. The nest had been on the bow of Tracy's boat, and Mum properly spoilt with copious rations of wet and duck food. I think I heard that about six were successful and took to the water, but by the next day they were down to four. Mum bustles around, usually leading the way, the four tagging along behind, going from boat to boat. And you can hear them as they round the bow of our boat. Mum first. A scatter of chicks, chinking and cheeping like fluffy yellow bats. The mother responding with chucking quacks and a strange guttural clap sound. It sounds like a beak clap, but a bill is wide open the entire time. The little balls of feathers buzz around the boat hull, pecking at the algae at the waterline and anything hiding in it. I throw mum a handful of duck food. One or two of the chicks break away and try to eat it, spit it out, and return to the hull side. The mother eats hungrily, but one of the ducklings is now on the other side of the boat. Cheeps and quacks maintain contact, but mother is clearly concerned. She pushes off, rounding the bow, the other three in tow. Nighttime can be a difficult time, a time when small fears grow into insurmountable problems. and One can feel isolated, but it can also feel a little less dark a little less lonely when you know that you're in the company of friends and there are so many friendly voices out there, in the darkness, all over the world, each one spreading pools of warmth and the light of companionship. And thank you everyone who does that. It's lovely to hear again from Olivia over on Instagram. I know, Olivia, you've been listening to the programme for a long, long time. And also for newer listeners, Lynette Powell, who also got in contact with me on Instagram. And it's lovely to meet you and thank you for your very kind words. And over on the Facebook page, old friends, Nancy Jean Armstrong from America, Jean Mann, Pete Tuffrey, and Pete, I hope things are a little bit more on an even keel now, and your work is still absolutely stunning. And Jane Cox and Sarah Wally, and also newer friends. Mary Lynn Cuvass sorry, is that how you, pre- is that how you spell, pronounce your name? From Texas. There seems to be a lot of interest in canals in Texas, for some reason. And Nicole Geerling-Size, from the Netherlands. And Ian Tinson, I'm so glad you've found us, Ian. And Rosario Aquaro Martin. And over on Twitter, there's our old friend and long-time listener, Steve from the Narrowboat Precious Jet. And I'm getting really envious of your electric, Steve. You're doing an amazing job with them. We're in the process of getting ours sorted out, but they're still a mare's nest. And, of course, Sharon and John, and I hope you're having a fabulous time on the Grand Union Canal at the moment. And the newer listeners, Arabella Holtzapfel in Vermont, thank you so much for your really kind words and welcome aboard, and Captain Arlo too, and greetings to Alaska and to Father Randy and hello also to Edith Marker. And also over in America, long-time listener Arlene from Seattle and California and <laughs> it seems to be everywhere in America, You thank you for getting in touch with me to give me some updates on her volunteering at the local wildlife rescue centre. It's certainly really varied and worthwhile work. And Arlene sent me a couple of lovely photographs of two of her current patients, a fledgling barn owl and a very, very cute young grey fox. And it was also lovely to hear from Margaret, who got in touch through the contact form on the NOSW pod page. Margaret mentioned her love for Anglo-Saxon and Old English Literature, which she first came across when studying English Lit at university. So it's lovely to meet up with another lover of Beowulf and the Anglo-Saxon poets, and I hope things are getting a little bit easier for you now, Margaret. And also thank you, Dave, for your kind comments. Lee Thomas also contacted me, and thank you for your very kind words, Lee, and I really do appreciate them. And Lee talked about the way that the podcasts finish, and certainly not the first person to draw attention to what can sometimes sound like a ticking clock that gets louder and louder. And one of the problems with podcasts is that they can sound very different depending on the device that you're using. Those closing sounds are actually a recording on the river weaver of a traditional narrowboat engine. It's, I think it's a lister that passes by and then sails off into the distance. And that steady flunk, flunk, of a large two-stroke diesel can indeed sound very much like a clock. And I, I can totally understand how it might be quite jarring and jolting you awake, and certainly that's not what it was designed to do. However, I'm a little bit reluctant to change it altogether because I also know that a number of people have contacted me to say that It's actually the best part of the podcast as they use it to go to sleep, listening to the boat disappearing into the night with the owls calling in the distance. However, I have remixed it and adjusted some of the sound levels and hopefully it will sound a little bit more like a narrowboat engine and also hopefully it won't be quite so strident. It certainly sounds fine on my headphones, but it does get a further remix as I upload the file to the podcast host site. And as I say, it also depends on the device that is being used to to listen to the podcast. So please let me know if it's still too loud or now too soft or, or if it's just right. But hopefully it won't jolt you awake again. It was also lovely to hear from Chris and Alan on the narrowboat, The Land of Green Ginger, who are currently heading northwards. And I just love that name of the boat, The Land of Green Ginger. It conjures up so many thoughts and things in your imagination. And also hello to old friends and long-time listeners, Alistair and Kathleen. Oh, and finally, but in no way's least, thank you to those who have been posting some really lovely reviews. I'm always really grateful of reviews because I've been told that and I don't know how it works, but apparently likes and reviews are really important in affecting the algorithms that are used by search engines. And perhaps more importantly for podcasts, the podcast directories themselves. So thank you so much. And so thank you, Christine Campbell. Ready break for the soul. I love that. And thank you again for your lovely words, VW Blue Camper. And if you want to contact me, and I do love hearing from you, the details of all the different ways that you can contact me from social media through to the noswpod.com website are in the program notes below. What's the colour of water? Now, I don't think that's exactly what I'm asking. It's more like How many colours can this stretch of water here be? How many colours can it contain? How can I capture the constantly shifting shades and its morphing tones? I see this stretch of water many, many times a day, and it's always different. And here it is now, as I sit here, my back propped against the stern box that contains the water hose and mooring paraphernalia, its continually shifting surface, tessellating, rippling, light fluidly flowing and pooling over the smooth contours of the water's surface. This is not water I float on, but light, I have made my home on living waters of liquid light. And is liquid light a colour? And once more I am confounded, defeated, frustrated. I can feel my knuckles itch and tense around this pen as I try to record this moment. For years I have tried to describe water to discover a palette of nouns that match this shifting flow that thwarts my pen, crafty similes to capture the slipperiness of reality that I can so easily pass by without a glance, as if a living stretch of liquid light filled with so much life is not worth a glance of recognition. I can remember... Perhaps it was over forty years ago now, standing with Tony in a car park, beside a clear stream that flowed down from the fells. It was sunny, and something about that stream caught both of our attention, for I remember both of us standing there for quite some time, watching the crystal-sharp water flowing over the gravel and pebbles, the sway of green water reed, the rills and pools as it tumbled over bigger boulders. And after a while, Tony said, How would you describe that sound? The sound this stream is making on a summer, sunny day, beside a small car park in a landscape of dry stone walls and fells. And for a while, we each threw our handful of words at it, as children like throwing stones into water, Skimming nouns and adjectives. But unlike skimmed stones, none of ours sank, all bounced clear. We got close, I think, but I can't remember exactly. But I do know we left unresolved. And I often remember that day when I'm stuck, staring into nothingness. Searching desperately for a word, a phrase. Poetry helps. Poetry allows you to use your peripheral vision. It's like doubling back. The collies long outrun so as not to spook the sheep, to take the thing unawares. Poetry can focus on the feelings of encountering the experience of the thing rather than the thing itself but even poetry has its limits. And today, I am stuck again, as stuck as I was with Tony and the streamside car park in the sunshine of youthfulness and lark song. The clouds part, and sunshine breaks through at the exact time as a shower of rain scatters like flung gravel, cast broad across the water. It feels good, the rain, and the sun dips back behind a cloud, and a warm southerly breeze bustles and gusts up the valley. And the rain soon passes. And all the while, insects skim the surface of the water, the same water whose essence I am failing to describe. At times, their legs trail along the surface cutting two spider-thread-thin lines in the water. Their flight is fast, erratic. They're mesmerising. Sometimes my eyes can scarcely keep up with them. To me, their flight is entirely random, a chaotic frenzy of movement. But I have learnt a long time ago to recognise that insects live their own lives by their own patterns of order and I am reminded of Job, that my world is shared with other worlds of which I know nothing, and therefore must tread wisely and choose my paths with care. The archdeacon pushed past. He's in a rush, feet paddling energetically, head and neck thrust forward with exertion. He looks like a runner sprinting for the finishing tape. A crystal bow wave foams and glitters around his chest, pushing up towards his neck. As he passes, he's making low chucking sounds. But I can see no other ducks nearby. He glances across at me, sitting on the stern, and then, literally, plows on through the churning water, leaving behind a wake Of disturbance, alive with his presence. And across from me, the yellow iris or flag is out. Exotic bright yellow plumes pennanting, Topping tall emerald-bladed leaves. The water beneath them is so still, Almost as if it is entranced with the beauty it reflects. In the skittering breeze, there's just the hint of a slight vibration that blurs their form into an impressionistic smear of oil-painted colours, nettle green, daffodil yellow. And above it, the wooden fence railings at the top of the bank where, a short while ago, a magpie perched. And above that, the dense green crown outlying the last of Arden's old forests. And then, above that, the heaped cumulus castles, towering and anviling into cumulonimbus thunderclouds. Their bases are dark and ragged, like soaked sheep's wool, but their looming walls are as white as newly sculpted snowdrifts. And the sky is a patchwork counterpane of clouds sewn together by needle-thin airliners, that flash silver and white. And now two swallows dart low, arrowing just above the water. There are two of them. They jink and turn, whirl and swoop, cutting the air with bladed wings. They bullet and flash for two more sweeps, and then, on some hidden command, pull up high and power off over the hedge. And over the fields. And the water still shimmers and ripples. And the colours and the light still dance. And I am still confounded. How can we live in a reality and live so easily in it? and be so familiar with it that we are no longer surprised each day by it and yet still have no language to describe it. Each year we coin new words to describe our new worlds, reifying the digital, embodying the notional, until the conceptual becomes our reality that is so real we no longer even feel the need to look beyond it. And so the internet, the cloud, the digital world becomes more real than this body of water that defeats my ability to describe it. Baudrillard describes this as hyperreality. We are living in hyperrealities, and it's not surprising that we are losing the grip on our earthy home. Nor is it surprising that a few of my students feel more connection and at home with the virtual worlds than they do in the wooded copse on Licky Hills. And so I sit here, my back resting against the stern side, trying to capture water with the wateriness of words, and I'm amazed and frustrated. I can either capture something about water in words, but it isn't this the thing that I am looking at, experiencing, the world that is meeting me, unfiltered. Or I can just experience this, the glint and movement, the sounds, the smells, the nuzzle of air as it rolls down the valley, the kiss of light and the shades beneath the campion flowers, and the strange pulse of connection and unfamiliarity when I look into the eyes of the duck that is passing, but I can't write it. I can't hold it or paint it with words. I can have words, or I can have this. This indescribable moment that blazes in the middle of an ordinary day of which I have no power or ability to articulate. It reminds me of something that the poet and nature writer Kathleen Jamie wrote about in her book Findings. She was visiting the Scottish Isle of Lewis and wrote this. I found a place well back from the cliff edge, out of the wind, and sat down. To the south a headland jutted out into the sea, and round its end gannets kept coming in threes and fours, heading north, all but invisible until they tilted into the sunlight, and then their white wings gleamed. The horizon was interrupted only by the flannel Isles, where, according to the ballad, the lighthouse keepers had so simply, so mysteriously, disappeared. It was still early. I sat on a damp rock, took my notebook from my inner pocket, Made earnest notes. South. Sky-thin line of rosy pink. Straightened blue-pink. Blue-grays. Flannan Isles. Horizon. Fine. Slate-gray line. And then something unreadable. Three gannets. I made notes, but the reason I'd come to the end of the road to walk along the cliffs is because language fails me there. If we work always in words, sometimes we need to recuperate in a place where language doesn't join up, where we're thrown back on a few elementary nouns. Sea, bird, sky. And I think Jamie has a point, and I understand those feelings so, so well. There are times when we just need to hold up our hands and fall back on those elemental nouns. And perhaps it's good and even right that even the profundity of the mundane and the beauty of the ordinary cannot be trapped in words and pinned like dead butterflies on a collector's wall. When I first fell under the spell of early English writing, I fell in love with their understanding and clear love and respect for words and language. I love the idea of word hoard. Described by Hannah Vidin in her fabulous book The Word Hoard, Daily Life in Old English, which could as is equally be subtitled as Old English in Daily Life and she describes it as a hoard or trove of words, and goes on to explain that a word hoard wasn't a physical object like a dictionary or even a library, but a metaphor for the collection of words and phrases a poet memorised and drew upon for their craft. And It appears a number of times in old English texts, usually the dean notes alongside the verb unlocken, to unlock, In Beowulf, the hero unlocks his word-hoard as he begins to address King Hrothgar's watchman. Word-hoards represent the technique used by oral poets, bards and minstrels the world over, from pre-antiquity to modern rap. In ancient Greece, Homer's Sea* and Iliad are filled with stock phrases, tag-words, rosy-fingered dawn, Slim-ankled Hebe, it's what gives ancient oral works their lyricism and their rhythm, the repeated motifs slipped in and out of the hearer's consciousness that drive the narrative and give it a symphonic air. It's how I best understand good jazz music, the riffs and the freestyle. The word-hoard was truly a prized possession, recognising the importance and powers of words and the power of combinations of words, kennings, to evoke such strong emotional responses when spun well. Words as treasures, precious jewels, things to be valued and carefully handled and admired, hard-won, powerful. I love, too, that writers of all crafts are described as wordsmiths, although, alas, I have found that its derivation is much later than the old English hoarders of words. Yet it suits the task of writing so well, the skilful hammering and moulding in the flame of inspiration new words, new forms, carefully fashioned and wrought like jewellery. But also, the aspect I know so well, wrestling and sweating in the furnace of creativity to bring to surface that word of such creative wonder that it can take the breath away, or at least approximate the wonder inside the imagination or in the fields that lie outside the door. And yet, I am also so very aware that viewed this way Words and language are simply an extension of conquest, our drive to capture, to control, to own, to acquire, to impose and reify our own perspective on that which can never be owned, to lock it into place, to categorise it and lead it by the chains of our language into our world. And we are good at it. But actually... I am so glad the depth of our experience when, to use John Moriarty's expression, nature happens to us unfiltered, unedited, is actually beyond the reach of words. I'm still in love with words. Words help us to make sense out of chaos, to call down the stars and weave meaning into the darkness of our universes. They can make us tyrants and heroes, warriors and healers. But most of all, if we are brave enough, they can give us wings to fly. And these words are my attempts to find the songs beyond the mundane. They are the shadows and shapes of my soul. They are my attempts to fly. And words can remind us. Challenge us, reconnect us, even help us to see things in new ways. But they are also times to remember that we need to lay aside words, to experience the now in all its inexpressible depth and beauty. I still cannot capture the sound of that stream on that sunny day so long ago and nor will I ever be able to capture in words the colours of this water right here, right now. But that is good. It's enough to sit and let this moment happen. I was struck earlier this week by something Thomas Merton wrote. A sweet summer afternoon, cool breezes and a clear sky. This day will not come again. The young bulls lie under a tree in the corner of their field. Quiet afternoon, blue hills, daylilies nod in the wind. This day, will not come again. This day will not come again. Nor should it. And nor should we try to hold it back or try to stop its flow through the fingers of our perception and mount it dead upon the walls like a trophy. There are moments which we must learn to just experience because that is the greatest and most authentic response we can give it. To remember again and acknowledge that our worlds are filled with so much beauty, complexity, life and transient. That it's far too big to be captured by words or Instagrammed images. And that our inability to articulate it is nothing about our failures, but about the staggering wonder of life that we fool ourselves into thinking, is just ordinary and mundane. And may your days be filled with the beauty of ordinariness and the mundane. This is the Narbo signing off for the night and wishing you a very peaceful, restful and quiet night. Good night. Temperature outside nine point six degrees, inside twenty one degrees, humidity sixty three per cent, dew point six degrees, wind direction southwest. Wind strength 5 miles per hour. Barometric pressure 1019 Rising Cloud cover 10% Cloud ceiling None Precipitation Nil Moon phase Fifty nine point seven per cent waning gibbous day length sixteen hours one minute sunset twenty one oh five sky casting five oh two